Thank you so much, Samantha. That was beautiful. As we begin, I want to congratulate the First Baptist Church of Arco, Idaho, who join us for our services every week because they just celebrated this month their 125th anniversary. So we praise God for their faithfulness to God over so many years. I know that Jesus is saying to them today, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to start our December series, which is called Christmas. Christmas isn't canceled. You can see I'm in the middle of all the decorations here, so we are ready to go to have a wonderful December here at, uh, at Purpose Church. But today, we're finishing up our November series, which is called Thriving in Babylon, based on the book of Daniel. Now, Babylon was an actual city where Daniel lived. Uh, it is in today, the nation of Iraq, very near Baghdad. Uh, it's just kind of the ruins of it today, but it's an actual city where Daniel lived. But for us as Christians in the Bible, it's symbolic or it represents a non-Christian or a post-Christian or an anti-God culture. And there are three character traits as we finished up the series that we've been looking at that are keys to thriving in Babylon. A couple of Sundays ago, I talked about hope. And then last Sunday, uh, Pastor Eric Vasquez, Vasquez and uh, uh, Pastor Eric Holmstrom did just an awesome. The two of them did an amazing job uh, talking about humility. And now today we're going to finish up by talking about uh, wisdom, how wisdom is important if we are to thrive in Babylon. Kim uh, Brenneman says, to be wise, we must seek Jesus, for we will not find wisdom apart from him. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, one of the keys to wisdom in Babylon is knowing when to fight battles and how to fight battles, particularly with regard to our surrounding culture. So let's now look at four biblical principles for knowing how and when to fight battles. And the first one we're gonna spend most of our time on, which is not every battle is worth fighting. Uh, General George S. Patton, who's considered one of the most aggressive military leaders in all of world history, even George Patton said wars are not won by fighting battles, wars are won by choosing uh, the right battles. I remember Kimberly and I had a little extra time before we, we visited my mother in, uh, in Virginia where I grew up. And we were flying out of the airport at Richmond, Virginia, which is right next to a battlefield, a Civil War battlefield called the Battle of Cold Harbor. And we had a, few, a little extra time, so we went and visited this battlefield. And I wanted to see it because Ulysses S. Grant said it's the one decision during the Civil War that he deeply regretted. Because he had not, as a general, gone up to look at the front lines to see the terrain. And way back uh, from the front lines at headquarters, he had ordered his troops to take a particular piece of land without looking at it ahead of time. And he had fought the wrong battle. And many, many Union soldiers completely unnecessarily died in that battle. Probably as many died as are watching uh, right now on, on our time together uh, here online. It was a horrific loss of life. And at the same time, it didn't advance uh, the cause of the Union Army in the Civil War at all. So it's all about picking the right battles to fight. See Joy Bell C writes, choose your battles wisely 
After all, life isn't measured by how many times you stood up to fight. It's not winning battles that makes you happy, but it's how many times you turned away and chose to look into a better direction. Life is too short to spend it on warring. Fight only the most, most, most important ones and let the, the rest go. And then that great uh, theologian, Kenny Rogers, once said, you've got to know when to hold them, you got to know when to fold them, you got to know when to walk away, and know when to run. And we see this in Daniel's life in Babylon. Now my point uh, is not to make direct parallels between Daniel's decisions and our decisions in 21st century uh, Southern California. Uh, for example, one of the battles that Daniel chooses to fight in Babylon that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in 605 BC uh, where he didn't want to eat the meat that had been offered up to, to Satan, to uh, satanic idols. Uh, one of those battles we're going to see later on in our message that Paul told Christians in Rome in 57 AD that was not a battle worth fighting. And yet Daniel, uh, yet Daniel thought it was a battle worth fighting. So it's different for different generations, for different cultures, for different situations, for different people. And we've got to ask the Lord to give us discernment. Which battles do we fight and which do we not fight? The point I want to make is, is that whether it's in Babylon in 605 B.C. or Rome in 57 A.D. or Southern California in 2020 A.D., there, the, the, there are battles to fight and there are battles to avoid fighting. So we're not trying to make a direct parallel between what they chose and what we need to chose today, but instead the big picture point, uh, the big message is there are some battles that are worth fighting and some we should enjoy, avoid. Now we have to ask for God's wisdom as to which is which. That's the hard thing. Which battles are which? Which do we fight? Which do we not fight? So let's look at some examples from Daniel's life. Uh, Daniel's coursework at the University of Babylon, he considered not worth fighting about. In Daniel 1, verse 3, then the king ordered Bashpinez, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And Pastor Eric Vasquez did a, a great uh, talk on that uh, last Sunday. It was just excellent. I encourage you to watch that message if you didn't get a chance to do that. And this study, this series of coursework of studies, would have included studying astrology and even the occult would be involved in that coursework. Now again, I want to be careful about making parallels with today. But remember now, uh, Daniel is 20 years old. So I don't think this applies to children, this whole idea of don't worry about the, the, the curriculum. I don't think this applies to that because Daniel was not a child. He was a young adult, like I said, about 20 years old. That's why, for example, Pastor Lisa Tony. Uh, here at Purpose Church has had classes here to inform parents about changes in the California curriculum for our children. And that is something uh, that we need to be concerned about. I am also a big believer in Christian education. But I believe that Daniel's situation is applicable to when we need to get our education as young adults from a secular institution or ongoing workplace training courses uh, that we take as adults. 
Now, Daniel may have avoided certain elective courses that were anti-God, but when it came to the required core curriculum courses that he had to take, uh, Larry, Larry Osborne writes, he didn't sit in the back rolling his eyes and subtly expressing his displeasure. He sat in the front, studied hard, and graduated at the top of his class. Doing so gave him the platform and credibility he needed once he entered the king's service to debunk Nebuchadnezzar's trust in these things. It even gave him the opportunity to introduce the king to the God most high. Here's the real big point out of it. Taking a course is not as the same as endorsing the course. Taking the course is not the same as endorsing the course. And so Daniel didn't con consider this a battle worth fighting the curriculum that he was forced uh, to study. Uh, Daniel's name change he considered not worth fighting about. In verse seven, we've talked about this a couple of times in our series. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel. He gave the name Belteshazzar. And we've talked about this a couple of times where Daniel in the Hebrew means God is my judge uh, whereas Belteshazzar means Bell's prince or Satan's prince. Now I'm sure he didn't like it very much that his name was now Satan's prince. And so every time he got called for dinner, you say, hey, Satan's prince, Satan, servant of Satan, come in here. Or every time they took a role in class, uh, he had to go through and he said, Satan's prince, and he had to raise his hand. Here I am, Satan's prince. I'm sure he didn't like it any more than I would like to be called servant of Satan Gunderson. That doesn't even have much of a flow to it. I wouldn't have cared for that. But there was nothing in scripture that said that you had to have a God-honoring name, and so he lets it slide. So curriculum, not worth the fight. Name change, not worth the fight. But then it comes to a third issue. But eating food offered up to Satan, Daniel considered that worth fighting about. It says in verse eight, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and with the wine. Now, it's interesting. I don't know how you feel about this. Have a discussion over lunch afterwards or in your life group. Uh, which of these three things would bother you the most? And I'll confess to you that out of this list of three, this last one is the one that would probably have bothered me uh, the least. You know, it, it would really bug me to have, be called Satan's prince. It would really bug me to be forced uh, to study uh, the occult, that, that would really bother me. But this whole idea that meat somehow, it was placed in front of a wooden idol that had been carved out of wood or, or carved out of stone and they said a few words over it and then put it on my dinner table. Um, I don't believe those idols are anything to begin with. And so that would have bothered me probably the least of the three. But somehow for Daniel, it was a really big deal and God led him uh, to fight that particular battle. I mean, Paul, as we're gonna see in a few minutes, uh, even said in Romans chapter 14 that this was not a big deal. But for, but for whatever reason, uh, this was a battle that Daniel wanted to fight and God gave him the victory as we saw a couple of Sundays ago. And maybe he won this battle because he chose not to fight the other two battles. Maybe because he let his uh, curriculum slide uh, maybe because he, he let his name change slide, then they were more open to him when he said, you know what, I really don't want to eat this food that's been offered up to idols. Now, the, here are some other um, examples of things the Bible mentions are battles not worth fighting. 
Being offended is not worth fighting about. Proverbs 19, verse 11. I love this verse. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times when you need to stick up for yourself. But most of the time, the Bible says that being offended is not worth fighting about. And it is actually, God says, it is to your glory. God will honor you. He will, that's a strong word, glory. That's usually just reserved for God. But it says he will glorify you if you choose to overlook an offense and not just be quick to take offense all the time or or quick to get angry uh, all the time. And so that's one of the ones where the Bible says it's not worth fighting about. Another one is forcing our morals on non-believers is not worth fighting about. Now let me be real quick to say what I don't mean. I don't mean that we shouldn't call on non-believers to follow Christ. I don't mean that we shouldn't preach about holiness. I don't mean that we shouldn't hold each other accountable in the body of Christ, within the church, hold each other accountable to live moral lives. And Paul makes this distinction in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. I mean, as, as, as Pastor Eric Vasquez said last Sunday, uh, this is just non-believers acting on their basis of non-belief. We shouldn't be surprised by that. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, but they are sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slander, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside uh, the church? God will judge those outside, as the scripture says in the Old Testament, expel the wicked person uh, from among you. So the bottom line is we don't judgmentally point a finger at non-believers and say, because of the way you're living, you're going to hell. But instead, we humbly and lovingly and graciously plead with them uh, to receive Christ. And as a result of receiving Christ, uh, they will have the Holy Spirit lead them into a different uh, lifestyle, a different way of living their lives. But we plead with them to receive Christ and thus avoid going to hell and going to heaven for eternity. And this is the kind of biblical wisdom that will allow us to thrive and have an impact in Babylon. Now, let me give you an example of each of these two approaches to people that are non-believers in Babylon along with us. Uh, Two different approaches. One is uh, humorous and the other is biblical. And the first one is just a story I love so much. It's by Dan Rather. Uh, He's one of the greatest journalists of all time. Uh, He started his career running this tiny little radio station, KSAM, in a tiny little town of 5,000 called Huntsville, Texas in, in 1950. And he tells about this story when he's just a college student running this little tiny radio station in his book, a kind of a biography called, or autobiography called The Camera Never Blinks. In truth, KSAM was a one-man operation simply because you could not operate the station with less. On the weekend, I put us on the air at six in the morning and kept the broadcast going until midnight. 
I answered the phone, repaired the equipment, mowed the lawn, and painted the tower. Long playing records, those of one artist in particular, were all that saved me from working 19 hours without food. The artist was Pastor Lot, who owned, uh, Pastor Lot owned the radio station, this local pastor. His brother, in spirit if not in fact, who sold Bibles out of Del Rio, Texas. The pastor's brother had recorded several religious albums featuring such favorites as the old rugged cross. He would pick a guitar and preach a little between songs. At 6 p.m. each Saturday and Sunday, I would put on one of those records, hop into my 1937 Plymouth pickup truck, drive to the dairy bar two miles away. There I would order two hamburgers to go and get back to the station before the record had stopped playing. Now one night I decided to alter the routine a little. I listened to a few bars of the opening hymn, hustled into the truck, and headed for the dairy bar. A new waitress, a freshman at the college, had started working there. So I said to myself, well, it doesn't matter much whether you take the hamburgers back or eat them here as long as you get back to the station before 6.30. I sat there, made small talk with the girl, and watched the big diesel trucks roll by on Highway 75 on their way to Dallas. I'd been at the dairy bar about 20 minutes when the phone rang. It's Pastor Lot, she said, handing me the phone across the counter. The pastor was in a very non-pastoral or unpastoral mood. Young man, he roared, have you heard my radio station anytime lately? No, sir. You see, while well, I got detained here, well, you get yourself where you can hear it, then you get back to the station, fix it, and by the way, you're fired. Click. I rushed out to the truck and turned on the radio. The voice of Pastor Lot's brother came through loud and clear. Go to hell, he thundered. Go to hell, go to hell, go to hell, go to hell. And he had been thundering it for about 20 minutes because the record was stuck. <laughs> Anyone who has ever lived in a small town can appreciate the impact of 20 solid minutes of go to hell on the local radio station especially when the station is owned by a, quote, man of the cloth, as some of the townspeople referred to Pastor Lot. Luckily for me, the Christian ethic prevailed. Pastor Lot found it in his heart to forgive me, especially after Hugh Cunningham reminded him that finding dependable help for 40 cents an hour wasn't easy, not even in Huntsville, Texas. Well, that is not a way to reach people in Babylon um, by telling them to go to hell, to go to hell, to go to hell. Um, here's how Peter challenged Christians to reach people in Babylon when he wrote these words from Rome. Uh, both 1 Peter that we studied this summer and 2 Peter, both of them we believe Peter wrote from Rome, which was nicknamed Babylon by the Christ followers there in, in Rome and really all through the Roman Empire. Their nickname for Rome was Babylon. And so we find two different 315s. You've heard of John 316. We have 1 Peter 315 and 2 Peter 315. First of all, 1 Peter 315. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. And then 2 Peter 3.15. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Patience 
love, humility, gentleness, re re respectful way. These are the ways that we can reach people for Christ in our Babylon, whether our Babylon is work or whether it's school or whether it's our neighborhood or whether it's our family. These are the, this is the approach that will influence and reach people for Christ in Babylon. Now, if you've never committed your life to Christ, I wanna give you a chance to do that right here, right now, wherever you're watching. Just three words, sorry, thanks, and please. First of all, sorry. You pray, Lord, I'm sorry for the sin and wrongdoing in my life. The way I've disappointed you, the way I've hurt other people, I'm sorry. And then thanks or thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross, living a perfect life and dying instead of me when you died on the cross and you rose again from the grave so that I could be saved. Thank you. And then finally, please, please, Jesus, come into my heart and be my savior. Save me uh, from the sins in my life. And now be my leader, be my king, be my Lord for the rest of my life. If you've never prayed that before, I invite you to pray it uh, silently now as I pray it out loud. Wherever you're watching, pray this with me. Oh God, I'm sorry for the wrong that I've done in my life. But I thank you, God, for sending Jesus to die on the cross and to rise from the grave so that I could be forgiven. I'm sorry, thank you, and please now, have Jesus be my leader, my Lord, and my King. Show me a different way to live uh, that will please and be honoring to you. It doesn't mean that I won't slip and fall and need your forgiveness all over again. But oh God, I repent of my old way of living and I want to live in a way that honors and pleases you. And thank you for forgiving my sins so that I can avoid hell and so I can have the hope of eternity with you in heaven. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and wherever you are, would you say out loud with me together, amen. And now number two, the second biblical principle. There are some battles that we shouldn't be afraid of. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at the verse where Jesus said that the gates of hell can't prevail against the church, and we need to remember that. There are some battles we shouldn't be afraid of. Uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Let's go back to verse 8 if we could. He is a roaring lion. He's a roaring lion and his roar uh, can scare you. But if Christ is in you, if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, he may scare you with his roars, but he can't hurt you. He is a roaring lion, but he is also a toothless lion. Christ in you makes him a toothless lion who's all roar and no bite. But I'm telling you, I know that roar can scare you. I've told you this story several times before. When I was a young pastor, 24 years old, in the tiny little town of 3,500 people called Homer, New York, very rural in upstate New York, right up near the Canadian border. And I just started out, 24 years old. I was single. I had not met Kimberly yet at this time, all by myself. And, and late on a Saturday night, 
I was preparing my sermon in the church. Now, this was an older, almost kind of a gothic, older kind of church with creaks and noises late at night, and it was almost midnight, and I'm all by myself uh, writing my sermon. And all of a sudden, I'm telling you, I felt like Satan was all of a sudden in my office standing right in front of my desk. And I was terrified. And I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, um, should I resist him like Peter was talking about? Or can I run? Because sometimes God says to run from Satan and sometimes he says to fight him and to resist it. And the Lord said, you can run. And so I ran out of there as fast as I could. And, and you know, later on, I was, when before I went to bed, I thought, oh, Glenn, your imagination got the best of you and you're in this old Gothic church and it's late at night and you're by yourself. It, it, it's all your imagination. Until I went into my office the next morning before church and my office is, is unlocked, it had been locked, no sign of outside entry, and my office had been destroyed. Books thrown all over my office. Bookshelves, heavy, thick boards that were bookshelves strewn across the office. One of them came right on my desk on top of my typewriter where I'd just been sitting. And I realized that Satan had tried to roar to scare a young pastor just starting out. It was kind of a warning shot. He was trying to frighten me away from what God had called me to do. But, but fortunately, I recognized it for what it was. It was the roar of a toothless lion and that I should proceed with the purpose that God had placed on my life because he may roar, but he may not bite if Christ is within you. John writes, the, the one who is in you is greater than the one in the world. The one who is in you, Christ, is greater than the one Satan who is in the world. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at John chapter eight when Jesus said about Satan, when he lies, he speaks his native language for Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And Satan will tell you that you can't win a spiritual battle against him, but he is lying when he tells you that you can't win that battle he is lying. You don't have to be afraid of that battle. You can take it on. James writes, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then the third biblical principle is there are some battles we can avoid through compromise. There are some battles that we should avoid through compromise. One of our favorite sayings here at Purpose Church is in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. In the essentials of the faith, the things clearly taught in the Bible, that Jesus came into the world, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, coming back again. These are the things clearly taught within the Bible. We are to fight for those things. We are to fight for unity on those things. But in non-essentials, now by non-essentials, it doesn't mean they're important. We should have conviction on a number of different things. But they're the things that are not so clear within the Bible. And sincere Christians can disagree agreeably about those things. In non-essentials, unclear things in Scripture where uh, sincere Christians can come to different conclusions, we believe in liberty. You're, you're free to follow God as you're led to do so. And nobody should impose or take away your freedom in following him in the way he leads. And in all these things, the thing that makes it work is charity. Another way to put it is, we fight for the essentials, we compromise on the non-essentials, and we do both with love. 
We fight for the essentials with love. We compromise on the non-essentials. We do both of those with love. When we compromise, we do it out of love. Even when we fight, we do it out of love as well. Now, the word compromise carries a bad connotation. We think it's something that the weak or the disobedient do. But in reality, compromise is something that the wise do. And the wiser you are, the better you do it. Uh, The wise know what battles they can win and what battles need to be fought later on or or not at all. Uh, Remember I said what Daniel would not compromise on in 605 BC, and that was eating vegetables instead of meat offered up to idols. He would not compromise on that. He believed that he should not eat meat that had been offered up to idols, and he should eat vegetables. Well, that very same issue in 57 AD in Rome, Paul said we should compromise on that thing. So the very thing that God led Daniel not to compromise on in 605 BC, um, six, almost six, 700 years later in Rome, Paul said that's the very thing that we should compromise on. Romans chapter 14, verse one, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. What I just called non-essentials, Paul would refer to as disputable matters. Uh, Verse two, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, okay? But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now this is not a second class Christian. This is not an inferior Christian. It just means for for some people they were like, you know, what's the big deal? Uh, Meat goes in front of some idol and they say some some, some mumbo jumbo and, uh, you know, just say some stuff that just is kind of... um, a silly in front of a carved uh, rock or in front of a carved piece of wood, and then they serve it on my dinner table. I don't care about that. Uh, but then other people would be like, man, just the idea of putting in my mouth meat that has been offered up to Satan, I, I just can't, I can't handle that. So it doesn't mean inferior, a strong versus weak. It just means one struggles with that, one does not. One's person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Uh, Verse three, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. Okay, don't treat with contempt the one who has a sensitive conscience if you don't have a sensitive conscience on a particular issue. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? So the person that has the sensitive conscience shouldn't judge the person that has the freer conscience on this issue or any issue. To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now, you know, I thought about this, and I think even a few months ago, I may have even made the same application. This reminds me of all of our differences on COVID. And some people are, are, are very... Uh, concerned and and sensitive about COVID, and then others are are not as concerned. And and let's go back uh, to verse one. It says, uh, COVID, you could say, as we have our debates on it and struggles with it, is what Paul would call a disputable matter. And it has divided Christians and churches almost right down the middle, 50-50. But then the thing to be careful about in the whole COVID debate is we should be careful that those that um, are, are, are not as concerned treat with contempt 
those that are more concerned. Boy, we've seen some of that on social media and everywhere where there's this feeling of contempt towards those that are more sensitive than, than I might be or, or, or you might be. But on the other hand, in, in verse 4, those that are more sensitive shouldn't be in a position of judging those that don't have the same degree of sensitivity. And so we don't judge, we don't show contempt, we show love. And then number four, the final principle, is the battle is won through faithfulness and not through success. Now, Daniel was one person in Babylon, or you could say four of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, just four of them, certainly didn't look like they were winning anything, they were not successful, but the battle is won through faithfulness and not success. And so here's Daniel, he's just all by himself with his three friends, there's four of them, and yet today, 2,600 years later, almost a third of the world's eight billion people follow Daniel's God. Think about that now. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just four of them against the whole Babylonian culture. And yet today, 2,600 years later, almost a third of the world's population, a third of the 8 billion people, almost 8 billion people in our world today, follow Daniel's God. See, the problem is we tend to think in terms of, of years or decades, but history is played out in centuries. And eternity is played out in infinity. So we tend to think, well, I'm not successful the followers of God are not successful in this year or in this decade. But history is the long term of centuries. And eternity is infinity. It, it's, it's forever. What we call failure might be the start of what God calls success. What we call failure might well be the start of what God calls success. And what we see as success may not look so great in 100 years. Never, never underestimate your impact. You might feel like a lone Daniel in Babylon, but God is able to use your faithfulness to do great things for eternity. But the battle is won through faithfulness and not through success. In Hebrews 11, we have this thing called the Hall of Faith. Instead of the Hall of Fame, it's called the Hall of Faith. People who were successful because of their faith and it lists all these great names in the Bible, and then it, it kind of wraps it up in verse 32, and what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, that's, that's Daniel, quenched the fury of the flames, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. But then there were others. All these listed so much, so far, were successful because of their faith. The rest that are mentioned were unsuccessful, even though they had the same amount of faith. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. 
They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. The writer of Hebrew saves the strongest commendation, not for the ones who were faithful and that made them successful, but for the ones that continue to be faithful even when they weren't successful. He says, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us. And that better is eternity in heaven. Faithful, even though in this life they were not successful. In Ezekiel God says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap. God says, I looked all across Babylon. Is there somebody who will take a stand for me even when no one else will on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it? But I found no one. Oh, Purpose Church, let's not be like that. Instead, let's like be like Isaiah. Isaiah writes, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Here am I, Lord. Send Purpose Church. Here am I. Send me. For 150 years, the people of Purpose Church have been saying, I I'll do it. I'll stand in the gap. Here am I. Send me. 150 years. And by the grace of God, we will continue to be faithful until Jesus returns.